Welcome to The Humanist Report. I'm Mike Figueredo. Today's episode is brought to you by Gamefly.com. If you visit the link in the description box, you can get a free 30-day trial to Gamefly and support the show by doing so. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking about Bernie Sanders and how there is a media bias against him, as well as the fact that Washington Post is now attempting to discredit Bernie Sanders. So I'll get to that. I'll get to the Abigail Fisher Supreme Court case, as well as the Daniel Holtzclaw rape case. And also, I'm going to be talking about the GOP debate, the final one of this year. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. Bernie Sanders supporters such as myself have been saying all along that there's a strong media bias against him. And we were correct to break out our tinfoil hats because a new study confirms just what we've been yelling about. So the Tyndall report found that the ratio with which ABC's World News Tonight covers Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders is astounding. So for the year of 2015, Trump was given 81 minutes of coverage, while Bernie Sanders was given 20 seconds of coverage. That's less than a ratio of 81 to 1. Again, that's less than 81 to 1 for two candidates who have an equal amount of support from their party. Now, when you compare uh, CBS, NBC, ABC, the big three, well, CBS Evening News gave Bernie Sanders a total of 6.4 minutes in the year of 2015. NBC Nightly News gave Bernie Sanders a total of 2.9 minutes. And again, ABC World News 0.3 minutes. <laughs> now, when uh, you add this all up, it's about 10 minutes of total Bernie Sanders coverage for the year of 2015. Now, when you juxtapose that with Donald Trump's total minutes, well, he had 234 minutes of total coverage. That is more than 23 times that of Bernie Sanders. That's insane. That's absolutely insane. So the overall findings of this report is that Trump has received more network coverage than all the Democratic candidates combined and accounts for 27% of all campaign coverage this year. That's more than one-fourth. Now, when it comes to the other candidates, Jeb Bush, who is failing, he received a total of 56 minutes. Ben Carson, a total of 54 minutes. Marco Rubio, even, uh... 22 minutes. Now, when you look at candidates who aren't running, Joe Biden, well, he has received a total of 56 minutes. So let me reiterate that to you. Joe Biden, just the speculation that he would potentially run, well, that galvanized the media to cover him for 56 minutes all year, while Bernie Sanders got a total of 10 minutes. The individual who has a very good chance of pulling off a political upset because he's currently leading in New Hampshire, well, he was given 10 minutes of coverage. So the question that we all instinctively want to ask is, why? Why is there a media bias against Bernie Sanders? And I have a couple of answers for you. So first and foremost, before I get to that, I want to look at the true powers of the media. So a really popular political science study by Iyengar and Kinder found that media are an institution that is so, so powerful that they can either propel a candidate's campaign by legitimizing him, or they can actually effectively kill off a candidate's campaign by basically ignoring him or her. Now, the way that they do this is going to be contingent upon the amount of coverage that they give to candidates. So they can legitimize the campaign of a candidate just by covering him or her excessively, and they can delegitimize or uh, invalidate a candidate's campaign by not covering him or her at all. So 
there are two reasons why uh, they cover Donald Trump way more than Bernie Sanders. Now, the first and foremost is really simple. Well, the media are driven by a war for eyeballs, and because more viewers equals more money, they opt for entertaining news rather than news that is meant to inform us. And since Trump is entertaining and gives them a ton of sound bites every single week because he says really idiotic things, they love him. He's making them money. And by doing this, they've inadvertently legitimized his campaign and made him a viable or the most viable candidate. It's no surprise that the candidate with the most coverage is doing the best. Even though he says buffoonish things, well, he gets the most coverage. So people then internalize his campaign as one that is legitimate based on the amount of coverage he receives. Hence the reason why he's running away in the polls. It's very simple. Now, the second reason why Donald Trump gets way more coverage, 23 times more coverage than Bernie Sanders. Well, it's sad, but the media establishment, much like the political establishment, is in bed with corporate interests. They benefit from the fact that people buy candidates and the fact that political PACs buy candidates. Now, Bernie Sanders' anti-corruption message and desire to get money out of politics, well, that is something that is directly harmful to the bottom line of media. It is a direct threat to the status quo. So covering Bernie Sanders is literally against the interests of the media because he's an individual who threatens their profit margins. So that's not something they want to do. Furthermore, they also don't have an incentive to cover him because Bernie Sanders doesn't have a political pack. So he's not going to be contributing to their bottom line because political packs, which buy a ton of negative ads for candidates, well, they're not going to be doing that for Bernie Sanders. So they have zero incentive to cover him, and they actually have an incentive to kill off Bernie Sanders' campaign. And they can easily do that, like they've done in the past, by just not covering a candidate. So I'm not making this up. Les Moonves, the CEO of CBS, recently stated that Trump makes money for his company. And um, super PACs, even though they're bad for America, they're great for CBS. And a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who not only wants to ban super PACs, but who doesn't have one, means that Bernie Sanders ain't doing anything for CBS and other news networks. So since Bernie Sanders won't benefit them and will actually harm them, well, this is why they want to kill off his campaign. This is why there's a media bias against Bernie Sanders. And this is also why the Democratic establishment wants to kill off Bernie Sanders' campaign, too. He directly threatens the interests of top Democratic donors. So this is why you see really weird debate schedules. This is why we have a debate the Saturday before Christmas. This is why we have a debate in January on a Sunday during major football games. It's because they want to limit the reach of his message, because by doing this, it will be more conducive to a Hillary win, which will be great for Democratic donors who want to buy the party. It'll be great for Wall Street. So there's a bias because Bernie Sanders threatens the status quo. I don't think I'm telling Bernie Sanders supporters anything new. We already knew this, but it's shocking to some people because they can't comprehend why Donald Trump would be covered more than Bernie Sanders, but it's really easy. But the fact that Bernie Sanders is still doing substantially better than many, many candidates, even though there's basically been a media blackout against him, proves that his message is resonating. I mean, the Democratic Party, they're terrified that people are going to like what Bernie Sanders has to say. The media are terrified that Bernie Sanders is going to say things that people like. And guess what? People are starting to like what Bernie Sanders has to say. He's not number one right now because people don't know about him. The more people that learn about Bernie Sanders, the more people that will support Bernie Sanders. And if they actually did cover Bernie Sanders as much as they cover Donald Trump, 
Hillary Clinton wouldn't even have a chance because his policies are more in line with Democratic voters. He is more in line with what most voters, the average voters, including Republican voters, want, especially when it comes to issues such as campaign finance reform. So the media bias is sick. Our media institution is completely sick and corrupt. And the incentives that drive media behavior are counter to what is conducive to a representative democracy. So this is sickening, uh, but it's not surprising to Bernie Sanders supporters. Writer Chris Kaliza of the Washington Post attempted to discredit Bernie Sanders because of his unwillingness to talk about foreign policy issues. He explains that Bernie Sanders only dedicated one sentence to the terrorist attack in Paris at the last debate, then, quote, launched into a 123-word riff on the necessity to address climate change, economic inequality, and campaign finance reform. That moment was a glimpse into the serious limitations that Sanders has as a candidate. Right, because you wouldn't want to focus on the issues that actually impact more people, such as climate change. I mean, that only impacts 7 billion people, right? So we might as well put that on the back burner and talk about other other types of issues. That doesn't make any sense. So anyways, he continues, Sanders is, sorry Sanders people, surprisingly one-dimensional as a candidate. When he is talking about the differences between the haves and the have-nots, about the need for more economic fairness, why we need to reform the campaign finance system or work to address global warming, he is terrific. When he is talking about anything else, he is um not. Now to anyone who literally writes and puts the word um in a written sentence, you know that they're trying to be condescending. So um, this is clearly condescension, especially the fact that he had to include the, uh, sorry, Sanders people, Ooh, don't want to offend your little fickle, feeble brains. It it's just condescending. Uh, and I really take issue with the overall tone of the article, uh, as well as the actual argument that he poses. Now, I agree that as a presidential candidate, you can't be one dimensional and only focus on a select number of issues. But Bernie Sanders is not one dimensional. He focuses on all types of issues. Now, he does emphasize economic issues, but he's right to do that because those are issues, one, that impact Americans most, more than terrorism. That's right. There are some issues more important than terrorism. Uh, and furthermore, those are the issues that the American people cares about. Now, furthermore, Bernie Sanders has the most comprehensive and rational strategy of all the candidates. He wants to form a coalition to degrade and defeat ISIS. He doesn't want the U.S. to just go at it alone. Now, this is a more reasonable policy than Hillary Clinton, because what does she want to do? She wants to directly, or she actually alluded to the fact that she wants troops on the ground or boots on the ground, as everybody uh, is saying. And she also wants to institute a no-fly zone in Syria, which could potentially escalate us into World War III with Russia. So Bernie Sanders is the one candidate out of all of them in both fields that has an actual sane policy. But let's not talk about that. The fact that he doesn't emphasize that, well, that's not enough for this guy. Now, furthermore, I agree that... Uh, with some of what he writes. So for example, when he says that Sanders is without question closer to the true heart of the Democratic Party than Clinton on a vast majority of domestic issues, that's absolutely true. But then he goes on to say, external events change the conversation in the race, and he has been unwilling or unable to change with it. Talking about economic inequality in the midst of a national debate about gun control and national security won't lose Sanders the ardent supporters he already has, but it will badly hamstring his ability to grow beyond the supporters he already has in what is essentially a one-on-one -on -one race with Clinton at the moment. For Democrats looking for a candidate who can stand up to the almost inevitable Republican charge that the party of Obama is both unaware of the full scope of the fight against terror and unwilling to do what it takes to win that conflict, Sanders has done virtually nothing to convince people he can be that guy. 
I disagree. Bernie Sanders talks about gun violence. He talks about terrorism. He has made the case of what he wants to do. But again, he's emphasizing on the issues that matter. So uh, he continues, quote, Sanders has shown little ability or inclination to grow beyond his pet issue set. And as a result, his campaign's challenge to Clinton has stalled. Now that right there is the crux of Kaliza's argument. Uh, and it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. Now, the fact that he's focusing on, quote, pet issues is not a problem for Bernie Sanders, as these are the issues that most Americans want to hear about. Uh, but the reason why his challenge to Clinton has stalled is because the media is not giving him enough coverage. They're not giving him the attention he deserves. Donald Trump, who has an equal amount of support in the Republican Party as Bernie Sanders has in the De Democratic Party, has 23 times the coverage of Bernie Sanders. So Bernie Sanders' message can't catch on if people don't know about him. So the fact that he is, quote, one-dimensional, as he's not, but the fact that you think he's one-dimensional is not the reason why his campaign has stalled in terms of challenging Clinton. Clinton. Now, in fact, polls show that many Democratic voters still don't even know who Bernie Sanders is, and this is especially true when it comes to ethnic and racial minority voters. Now, my argument that the media is inhibiting the full reach of Bernie Sanders' campaign is not fueled by my own speculation. It's actually contingent on political science research, namely by Iyengar and Kinder, who state that the media are so powerful, they have the ability to either legitimize a campaign of someone like a buffoon like, like Donald Trump, or they can effectively kill off a candidate's campaign by just not covering them. And that's what we've seen. We've seen a media blackout for Bernie Sanders, and because of it, it's made his campaign very difficult in terms of reaching more people. But his message is so strong, so one-dimensional, as you put it, that in spite of the media blackout, his, he's been able to do a really great job and thrive nonetheless. Now, to be fair, uh, Kaliza updated his article with this tweet. He states, Sanders press secretary Simone Sanders tells reporters before his press conference, don't ask about ISIS today. Yeah, okay. Now, look, sure, I agree with the fact that a presidential candidate should be ready to deal with any and everything, but Bernie Sanders has to rein in the media. Otherwise, they'll only focus on sensational issues and economic issues will never be covered. So if you just don't try to impose any controls on what you want to talk about, if you don't control dialogue, if you don't control the political message, we're going to be talking about terrorism 24-7. Hence the reason why uh, the Republican debate was nine-tenths terrorism. That's it. But that's not the number one issue that impacts voters. That's not. That's just not. I'm sorry, but we have to accept that. So by refocusing the media's attention to issues that have a real-world impact on most people, he's right to do that, and that's why he's so popular in spite of the media blackout. Now, again, his ability to refocus media attention and not attack Clinton are the reasons why people like him, because he's genuine, and he's actually speaking to something that doesn't get discussed. Now, to say that his campaign is stalling because... He's one-dimensional, which he's not, again, and uh, because he only focuses on these pet set of issues, well, that's just not correct. The media doesn't like Bernie Sanders. If it were the case that the media actually wasn't biased against Bernie Sanders, uh, his campaign would be leagues ahead of Hillary Clinton because more people agree with Bernie Sanders than any other candidate in the entire presidential field. I've gone over this before where I actually compare Bernie Sanders' policy positions to public opinion polls, and almost every single one of his policies has majority support. So this is just an attempt to discredit Bernie Sanders and paint him as a candidate who's not serious because he's one-dimensional. Well, no, that's not the case. In fact, he's the most diverse candidate 
of all of them because he talks about a broad range of issues. On the entire Republican field, all they talk about is Islamic terrorism when that's not the biggest threat to America. But you don't see this guy critiquing them. You don't see them calling out the Republicans for being one-dimensional, right? No, only Bernie Sanders. When we talk about Hillary Clinton, she is trying to parrot everything that Bernie Sanders talks about. If Bernie Sanders talks about something, she'll talk about something. Now, is Hillary Clinton one-dimensional as well? Because she talks about the same issues that Bernie Sanders talks about? No, it's because his campaign is galvanizing the public and she's trying to emulate his success, even though he has a smaller reach than Hillary Clinton. So I completely disagree with this article and the fact that they try to discredit him like this, it's inherently misleading and it's not representative of reality. The real reason is that Bernie Sanders is, he's facing an uphill battle due to media bias, not because he's one dimensional. I think he's the best candidate we've had in a generation. Marco Rubio recently stated that if he's elected president, he would roll back Obama's executive orders that protect federal LGBT workers from discrimination. And furthermore, he says that he will appoint Supreme Court justices that will overturn the landmark marriage equality ruling. Specifically, he states, quote, No one should ever be compelled to sin by law. I don't believe any case law is settled law. Any future Supreme Court can change it. And ultimately, I will appoint Supreme Court justices that will interpret the Constitution as originally constructed it's not about discrimination. It's about the definition of a very specific traditional and age-old institution. If you want to change it, you have a right to petition your state legislator and your elected representatives to do it. What is wrong is that the Supreme Court has found this hidden constitutional right that 200 years of jurisprudence had not discovered and basically overturned the will of voters in Florida, where over 60% passed a constitutional amendment that defined marriage in the state constitution as the union of one man and one woman. Now, he also expressed that he would appoint Supreme Court justices that would overturn uh, the Roe versus Wade ruling as well and basically ban abortion effectively. Now, uh, he also expressed a concern that pastors uh, should not be forced to marry same-sex couples. Uh, but this has not happened. If you are a same-sex couple and you go into a church they can reject you, and they have done this multiple times, but Marco Rubio is not concerned about reality. He's concerned about a political ideology that is, frankly, it's outdated, even among Republican voters. So to be president and to not understand this fact is potentially detrimental to his campaign. So he also does not realize the fact that our constitution is based off of Madisonian principles. So the fact that 60% of Floridian voters don't want marriage equality doesn't mean anything. It's not important because we don't vote on minority rights. We have a Madisonian-oriented uh, democracy because we protect the minority from majority tyranny. So if for whatever reason we voted uh, to reinstitute the institution of slavery, that sounded really redundant, but if we wanted to bring back slavery and a majority of Americans voted for it, well, it doesn't matter because we have to protect the rights of the minority. Now, furthermore, same-sex marriage is not a hidden right. It is one of the many rights that emanate out of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, what he doesn't realize is that the right for us to have interracial marriages emanated out of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment in 1967 in the case of Loving v. Virginia. So by his own logic, he's saying that we should be against interracial marriage because for about 150 years, that right was not found in the Constitution. Would you be against that, Marco Rubio? Are you against interracial marriage? 
you know, he's not worried about the institution of marriage. What he's worried about is pandering to the most ignorant Republican voters. Um, and he wants to throw gay people under the bus to do that. Well, guess what? That ship has sailed. Move on. Your party needs to move on. You need to move on. Being homophobic is not something that is going to make you any more electorally viable. Now, unfortunately, it's the case that being xenophobic and racist will make you electorally viable. Uh, if you look at Donald Trump, it's not going to win you the White House, but it'll give you a boost because Republican primary voters love that type of stuff. But being homophobic, that's just that's something that is not a smart strategy if you want to win. I mean, if you get to the general election, do you think that by isolating all the Republican voters with gay and lesbian and transgender uh, friends and family and bisexual members of their family, do you think isolating them is going to help you win? It's not. It's not. And it's just a stupid strategy. So you need to move on. That ship has sailed and you sound like an old fart. So congratulations by catering to the dumbest and oldest proportion of Republican voters who are dying off. So good on you, Marco Rubio. Pretty smart. It's often the case that state-sanctioned violence against individuals carried out by police officers often goes unpunished. This was true for the officers who killed Eric Garner and Tamir Rice. But a police officer who perpetuated mass rape, uh, Daniel Holtzclaw, will actually spend his life in prison. Now, this is a difficult topic for me to discuss because I have family members personally affected by sexual assault and rape. So it's something that I've seen firsthand. Uh, the consequences of this type of conduct. And also, by talking about these types of issues, uh, I'm afraid that I could potentially trigger PTSD for victims of rape and sexual assault. So I'm always disinclined to speak about these types of issues, but the fact of the matter is that you have to talk about it because rape is a real problem. Now, I think that this case in particular is important because it demonstrates that justice is possible, and I hope that by discussing it, this could potentially bring a little bit of uh, solace and hope to victims of sexual assault elsewhere, elsewhere who did not get justice. So uh, during a month-long trial, jurors heard from 13 women who said Holtzclaw sexually victimized them. Most of them said Holtzclaw stopped them while out on patrol, searched them for outstanding warrants, or checked to see if they were carrying drug paraphernalia, then forced himself on them. Now his victims include a 17-year-old child and even a grandmother in her 50s. Now, although he didn't discriminate based on age, he preyed on African-American women of color in predominantly poor black neighborhoods. Every single one of his victims was a woman of color with the exception of one. So this guy probably did this thinking that he can get away with it because these are individuals who have intersectional identities that are highly marginalized. I mean, if you're African-American, you're disadvantaged a lot more than other people, but if you're an African-American woman of color, you have even more disadvantages than uh, other individuals within your own community. So, I mean, these are people who are really disadvantaged from a societal standpoint, and it's just really frustrating that he did this because he thought that he can get away with it because a lot of the time, unfortunately, you know, people in positions of power do this, and they do get away with it because people in these circumstances, they, you know, they don't have the resources to fight it. They don't have the time to fight it. So they just try to move on. So this guy was clearly sick. Now, CBS News explains that Holzclaw was convicted of 18 counts involving eight of the 13 women who actually accused him of sexual assault and rape, although he was acquitted on another 18 counts. So he was found guilty of, quote, four counts of first degree rape, one count of second degree rape, six counts of sexual battery, four counts of forcible sodomy, and three counts of procuring lewd acts. So again, this is someone who is a twisted 
corrupt, disgusting individual. Now, CBS News explains the first-degree rape convictions could have carried a life sentence, but the jury recommended 30 years on each charge and a total of 236 years in prison. Formal sentencing will take place on January 21st. The fact that justice will be served in this case doesn't erase the pain felt by the victims or assuage the psychological trauma that they're going to deal with for the rest of their lives. I mean, this is something that you don't get raped and then you're okay, like you move on. It's it's something that will live with you and some people, it, it's just detrimental to their mental health. I mean, you live with PTSD, anxiety, panic disorder forever because of this. I mean, you can't trust other people again. I mean, it, it's something that has such a strong impact on the lives of victims that it's it's one of the worst violations of humanity. So uh, hopefully, though, this will send a message to others in authority that you don't have the right to abuse your powers or use it over the heads of others. And furthermore, hopefully this shows that, you know, there is hope for victims of sexual assault and rape that if, you know, if you're a victim of this, there can be justice, even though it is often the case that you don't get justice. It is possible. Uh, so I wanted to talk about this case because it's something that is really, really important. I've never been a victim of sexual assault, but as I stated, some of my family members have, and I see the way that it impacted them. And um, I can never even uh, put myself in their shoes because I can't imagine the pain and suffering that it caused, but I can see it. Uh, so I definitely sympathize with that. And it's something that is so sickening. And the fact that this guy was able to carry it out, and now he's crying about the fact that he may potentially serve 263 years well, it just shows that he has no remorse, no regard for others, and he can't even comprehend how his actions were devastating. I mean, sure, you may spend the rest of your life in prison, but what you did to potentially 13 women, eight of which were um, he was convicted for, well, they're in their own mental prison now because of you. So you ruined their lives more than you ruined your own life. Uh, so I'm glad that justice is served, and um, this guy is sick. Abigail Fisher is a 23-year-old college student who applied to the University of Texas but got rejected. And rather than blame herself, she decided to blame minorities and the policy of affirmative action. Now, she explains, There were people in my class with lower grades who weren't in all the activities I was in who were being accepted into UT, and the only other difference between us was the color of our skin. I was taught from the time I was a little girl that any kind of discrimination was wrong, and for an institution of higher learning to act this way makes no sense to me. What kind of example does this set for others? Now, uh, her argument is false. She made it up entirely uh, because Addicting Info explains, out of all the students that were admitted with lower grades than Fisher, five of those students were black or Latino, while 42 were white. Remember when she said the only difference was the color of their skin? Neither Fisher or her law team dared to mention those 42 students during any interviews. They also failed to mention the 168 black and Latino students with better grades than her that were denied admittance. The worst part is that Fisher was given a standard university offer to start attending the University of Texas during her sophomore year. All she had to do was earn at least a 3.2 GPA at a different Texas university during her freshman year. She chose to turn down the option to work hard and earn a spot some students still would be overjoyed to have. In doing so, she also chose to scapegoat minority students everywhere and overturn affirmative action law to soothe her white pride and privilege. 
That was pretty scathing on Addicting Info's part, but it, it's very true. This is a clear case of entitlement. Now, nonetheless, uh, she still is going ahead with suing the school, and her case is now headed to the Supreme Court, which means that affirmative action is now under direct threat. It could be overturned entirely because of this case. So now, let me explain to you a little bit about what affirmative action is and why it's important. Affirmative action does not mean that minorities get in over white people because of the color of their skin. Rather, it means that a, a minority being a member of the disadvantaged group is a plus, just like if you participated in after-school activities, that would be a plus. Or if you volunteered for years throughout your tenure as a high school student, that would be another plus. Well, being black or Latino is just a plus. Our country's history of racism has made it exceedingly difficult for the underprivileged to succeed. So because this privileged, entitled girl who only wants to go to UT because she feels entitled to it since her family and relatives and they all have a history of going to it, well, she wants to not blame herself, but instead she wants to place that blame of her own failure on minorities and threaten a policy that doesn't even necessarily even the play in f playing field. Affirmative action isn't a real end-all policy to ameliorating centuries worth of discrimination, but it helps just a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, so yet, this entitled person may potentially ruin it for everyone else because she can't admit that it's her own fault she didn't get in. So this is a clear case of entitlement. This is a clear case of someone not acknowledging that she is a white privileged individual. So I find this absolutely maddening. I mean, it, it's one thing to just simply throw your hands up and irrationally blame minorities for your own failure, uh, but to actually pursue a case against it, to actually threaten a policy that is beneficial for individuals who suffer from extreme social, legal, and institutional marginalization, I think that's sickening, and I think that this individual is... She's basically a, uh, a Republican poster girl in the making, so you can see her running for Congress in the future as a Republican, uh, and I'm guessing she's probably going to vote for Donald Trump, because he too likes to blame minorities for all of our country's problems, but rather than uh, blaming minorities for your own failures, how about you take responsibility for yourself. Okay, so the last GOP debate of the year has just wrapped, and I wanted to give you guys my insight and my overall analysis of what I think went down, who I think won, who I think lost, and my thoughts are relatively scattered because I can't really say with certainty that there's a clear winner. I also can't say that there's a clear loser. Um, I think everybody was kind of more towards the middle this time, although I do think uh, certain individuals stood out. But before I get to that, I'm going to go ahead and give you guys a general rundown of my just basic thoughts that I was thinking throughout the debate. Now, first and foremost, nine-tenths of the debate was focused on terrorism, specifically global jihad, Islamic terrorism. Uh, this is something that all of the candidates stressed that you need to be afraid of, and also each of the candidates pledged to protect you. So now when you juxtapose gun violence statistics with uh, terrorism statistics, you'll see that a lot more people die due to gun violence than terrorism, yet the emphasis was on terrorism, specifically Islamic terrorism. Now look, that's still a problem, that's not to downplay the problem of actual terrorism, but the fact that this elephant in the room was there, gun violence, uh, and nobody thought that we should be afraid of that, but thought that we should be more afraid of Islamic terrorism, well, 
It just seemed really interesting, and I thought that it was very conspicuous that it was absent. Now, we also saw some real differences tonight when it comes to uh, foreign policy. I noticed that the non-establishment candidates like Cruz, uh, Paul, Trump, and Carson, well, they were all more non-interventionist in their foreign policy orientation, whereas when you look at more establishment candidates, such as Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, um, they were more likely to support foreign interventions. Uh, and I think this is probably because they take money from defense contractors, so they are trying to pay it forward to their donors. Now, another thing that I noticed is that this debate really came down to several disputes between the candidates. So we had the disputes between uh, Jeb Bush and Donald Trump. We had the disputes between Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. We also had um, some disputes between uh, Marco Rubio and Rand Paul. And that's really what I think was the highlights of this debate. Now, with that being said, I'm going to get to who I think was the winner. So the winner this time is Jeb Bush to me. Now, look, I think that the runner-up was Ted Cruz, but I think that overall, Jeb Bush had the most, um, I think, the best moments. So Ted Cruz performed really well, I think, which is a crazy thing I think that I would never have said before because I absolutely despise Ted Cruz. I think he's too smarmy and whatnot, but I think that he did really well, but there were a couple of moments that kept him from being number one. Now, I'll address that later on, but I think that Jeb Bush did a phenomenal job at attacking Donald Trump. I think that he seemed like a decisive leader, and um, I think he came out looking really great, and I'm thinking this might actually help him in the polls. Now, in third place... I think that's a tie between Donald Trump and Rand Paul. I personally like Rand Paul more than any of the other candidates just because I agree with him more on policy. Uh, I despise Donald Trump, although I think that he did still perform relatively well. I don't think that he outperformed the other candidates per se. Um, you could make the case that Trump won, but I think that he's probably in about third. Now, as for the biggest losers... I, I can't pin down who's the biggest losers in my mind. So definitely um, Ben Carson is a loser because he was a non-entity. Carly Fiorina, again, another non-entity, pretty much irrelevant during the whole debate. And maybe even Chris Christie because he basically came off as a big crazy person. And actually, I'm going to add John Kasich to that list as well because, again... Uh, we have Christine Kasich, two moderate Republican candidates who basically showed their true colors that they are absolutely insane. Now, I'll get to that as well. So I'm going to go candidate by candidate, and I'll tell you about um, my thoughts on their performance. So when it comes to Jeb Bush, I think... I think that he really posed a strong challenge to Donald Trump, and he didn't back down this time. Now, he attacked Trump multiple times and illustrated how he would make a better leader, and Trump really couldn't do anything to thwart those attacks. Trump defended himself pretty well and rebounded at the first couple attacks that Jeb Bush launched, but towards the end, Trump had nothing. He ran out of steam. He kind of pivoted to the fact that Jeb Bush is failing in the polls, and that's certainly something that you have to take notice of, but I mean, it didn't actually invalidate Jeb Bush's arguments against Trump. So I thought that he came out looking really well there. When it comes to foreign policy, he actually demonstrated real knowledge of foreign policy issues, such as the fact that the Kurds who are Muslims, who Donald Trump wants to ban from entering the country, well, they're actually fighting ISIS. They're one of our biggest allies in the fight against ISIS right now. So I think that that was good for Jeb Bush to point out. However, even though Jeb Bush was very authoritative and decisive and he spoke with confidence, some of the things that he actually said were just downright crazy. Now, first and foremost, he states that he wants to remove, quote, barriers and the high standards that Obama has in warfare, which he's basically referring to the Geneva Convention, which protects 
uh, against war crimes and collateral damage and whatnot. Uh, basically, by saying that you want to reduce the standards, well, you mean that you don't want to worry about killing civilians. And this is really, really ominous. This is scary to me. To hear someone who has a fairly good chance, I mean, at least one in ten, right, of becoming the next president of the United States, to say that you want to make it easier to kill civilians, that's terrifying to me. That's terrifying to me. Now, also, he doubled down on his comment that getting Saddam was a good deal. And that's just idiotic. As we all know, whenever you overthrow a dictator, who we don't like, by the way, but when you overthrow them, you destabilize the state. So when you took out uh, Saddam Hussein, you destabilized Iraq. When you took out uh, Gaddafi in Libya, you destabilized Libya, and it's now basically a failed state. So we need to mind our own business, basically. Now, overall, this was definitely his strongest performance, and he actually displayed characteristics of a leader, I think. Um, I thought that he was very decisive and assertive, and these are things that he wasn't before. He was more, um, he was more quiet. He was more uh, reluctant to speak his mind, but I think that he did a good job at really displaying that he does have some of those characteristics as his brother ha has, uh, regardless if you disagree with his policies or not. Uh, but the fact that he wants to perpetuate war crimes and uh, lacks the understanding of what actually causes chaos in the Middle East, well, it just demonstrates that he is not going to be a good leader. Uh, now, moving on to Ted Cruz. So this is the first time that I think Ted Cruz actually shined. He had a very good performance, but he had some really cringeworthy moments that kept him from being number one in my mind, as I've stated earlier. So if it wasn't for the fact that he kept talking over the moderator and then got booed, I may have put him at number one, but I think that that moment was so damaging, it was so cringeworthy that I can't put him at number one after that happened. It was just bad, and you could tell he was embarrassed from that. He needs to learn how to shut up. He doesn't know how to do that. Now, I think that when it comes to his battles against Marco Rubio, I think he won every single time. He won on foreign policy, and he made a really strong case for non-interventionism, which I actually agree with. Yes, I agree with something that Ted Cruz said. This is insane to me. I'm actually questioning myself right now. But nonetheless, I think he made a pretty good point when it came to why we should not intervene in foreign affairs that don't involve us. Um, he also talked about how we shouldn't topple dictators and arm mythical moderate rebels. Uh, that was his quote. And I think that he made some fantastic points and he really differentiated himself from the establishment candidates. Now, he also outshined Rubio when it came to immigration, just for no particular reason. I thought that he... Uh, he was less flustered than Rubio. You could tell Rubio didn't know how to respond to Cruz's attacks, whereas Cruz just kept him coming. So I think that that was beneficial for him. Um, he also pulled the Hillary Clinton by just outright copying Trump's comments. So I say Hillary Clinton because Hillary Clinton is now copying Bernie Sanders. Um, and Cruz is doing the same thing to Donald Trump. When he talks about we're going to build a wall and we don't win, but we will win if I'm president. Well, this rhetoric is plagiarism of Donald Trump. Uh, but I think that this is really smart for Ted Cruz because what he's doing is he's emphasizing the more stronger aspects about Donald Trump while simultaneously downplaying the more weaker aspects of him, which is blatant xenophobia and racism. Now, we all know that Ted Cruz is also a xenophobe and a racist himself, but he's more subtle about it. He's less overt, and I think that this could potentially help him because the crazy right-wing supporters um, who are of these candidates who are voting in the primaries, well... They're going to think that that's going to make him more electorally viable and vote strategically for Ted Cruz because of this. Because basically, you're getting what you think is seemingly uh, Donald Trump without the craziness. But 
we all know Ted Cruz is crazy. Um, now, he was also less smarmy this time, uh, because I think that for the previous four debates, he came off as completely smarmy, but uh, he was still very fake overall. Now, when it comes to Trump, he really needed to demonstrate foreign policy knowledge, and I don't think that he did that particularly well tonight. Now, he had some great points about why the Iraq war was a blunder uh, and why we shouldn't be the world policed, but he still hasn't demonstrated that he has anything more than an elementary understanding of foreign policy issues, particularly related to the Middle East and North Africa. Now, additionally, he is beginning to sound like a robot because every single time he'll cite the same exact talking points. Now, this is word for word. So, for example, uh, in his closing statement, once again, he talked about how America doesn't win anymore. Well, Trump, you've said this the last three times in a row. Switch it up. We already know what you're going to say. I can predict it right now. You're going to say we don't win. We're going to build a wall. It's going to be great. Our leaders are stupid. I mean, you stick to the same exact talking points and it's really redundant. It's really tiring at this point to hear. So he needs some new material. And also, a lot of these statements, such as we don't win, these are just vague platitudes that don't mean anything. It, he's not putting forth a substantive policy. He's not putting forth a coherent message when he says things like this. Uh, so I, I don't think it helps him. Now, when it comes to the question of whether or not how killing ISIS's families makes us different than ISIS, I think that he completely botched the question, and I think that Rand Paul was correct to state that Donald Trump supporters need to ask themselves, um, do you support the Constitution? Because if you are supporting Donald Trump and you vote Donald Trump, well, you don't care about the Constitution because he wants to basically wipe his butt with it. Now, when it comes to Rand Paul, I think he won the last debate, but this time he looked just completely run down. He looked tired. He looked like he didn't want to be there. He sounded like he had a cold even. Maybe that was the case, but I don't think so because I thought that he sounded like this, the um, former debates, not the last one, but for the uh, debates one through three, I thought that he sounded as though he had a cold. And it's just because he just seems completely apathetic to me and doesn't want to be there. Now I'm saying this as uh, someone who agrees the most with Rand Paul out of all the GOP candidates. Now, he made a great point by saying that when we restrict civil liberties to fight terrorism, the terrorists win. Um, but this point was lost on the other candidates. Now, also, uh, when it comes to his attack on Chris Christie, it was savage. I mean, he remarked that Chris Christie is the World War III candidate due to his no-fly zone. Um, and he also uh, brought up Bridgegate to basically demonstrate how corrupt Chris Christie is. And I actually remarked out loud to myself, damn, when he did this, because that was just insane. And it was my favorite moment of the debate for Rand Paul. If he had more moments like that, I probably would have placed him at number one again. But I think that overall, he just didn't seem like he wanted to be there. And I think that's not going to translate very well to voters. Um, now, he was fundamentally wrong now on two issues. First and foremost, he stated that when it comes to Syrian refugees, the Gulf states are not doing anything. But when you look at states such as Lebanon... Well, one-fourth of their population now is currently uh, Syrian refugees. So they've taken in so much refugees, they have a literal refugee crisis. I mean, it's, it's insane right now. They don't know how to take care of all these people. So some states have really taken on more of a burden than they really could. So I think that he should have given them credit. Now, he also said that our greatest national security threat is debt. But that's not true. So all the countries have debt. It's just a reality. And although it's not a great thing to have... It's just a fact. If you're a country, you're going to have debt. Um, a real national security threat, however, is climate change, because this actually threatens not just the United States, but the entire planet existentially. So if someone were to tell you that ISIS invaded Florida and took over parts of Florida, and it was no longer ours, they, uh, they annexed part of Florida, 
we would consider that a national security threat. So when the oceans rise and Florida is underwater, we will lose part of Florida. So why is it the case that we only consider national threats something that is tangible, like a group or a state? But if it's actually the planet who is threatening us, we don't consider that a national security threat. Well, I've got news for you. It is, and it is currently classified as a national security threat by the Obama administration, and rightfully so. So we got that wrong. Now, when it comes to Ben Carson, Ben Carson was a biggest loser to me, one of the biggest, maybe the biggest, because he did nothing to make a comeback. And also, his moment of silence was absolutely embarrassing and just disingenuine. Basically... He said, I want to make a moment of silence for the San Bernardino victims. Okay, so let me talk about my policies. That It was one second, and I thought that, you know, at first when he said he was going to do a moment of silence, I thought, wow, you know, this is really great because he's actually sacrificing his time to pay um, respect to the victims of um, the San Bernardino terrorist attack. But the fact that it was one second proved that he was just pandering, uh, and I thought that I came off... I thought that that came off so bad, so he shouldn't have done it. Um, and he was just a non-entity because he he didn't do much during the debate. He didn't have any moments that he uh, shined in. He was just not there. The candidates, the other candidates anyways, ignored him. It was just not a good night for him. Now, when it comes to Carly Fiorina, again, she did nothing to regain momentum. And her points are just dim-witted. So, for example, she made a point on China that was just ridiculous. She stated that if we escalate tensions with China... Basically, that would influence them to support us and work with us. <laughs> if you believe this, you are going to have the worst diplomatic strategy in American history. Because if you poke people with a stick, that usually pisses them off. I know when I'm poked with a stick or someone is rude to me, I don't usually want to help them. I'm usually disinclined to help them or support them in any way, shape, or form. So the fact that she can't extrapolate this on a macro level and see that if you piss countries off... You're not going to get many diplomatic solutions to problems. Well, she's just not very smart. Now, when it comes to Chris Christie, um, I lost count of how many absurd statements he said. He went full crazy tonight. Um, so basically, he said that it's reckless to invite Russia and Iran into Syria. But they're fighting ISIS. <laughs> he talked about how we should be afraid of ISIS and how we need to fight ISIS. Iran and Russia are fighting ISIS. So that was absolutely insane. And he doesn't know what he's talking about. He has no clue what's going on there. Now, he also wants to institute a no-fly zone. And he said he'd actually shoot down Russian jets that are trying to fight ISIS who violate the said no-fly zone. Again, this is something that could potentially escalate to World War III. We don't want that to happen. What are you thinking? I mean... They don't ever think about the consequences of their foreign policy actions. And this is why we've had so many foreign policy blunders, because none of the Republicans ever think about these types of things. Now, he also said Iran and ISIS are, quote, inextricably connected. Iran? They, let, let me just let me let me restate that because it's so absurd. Iran and ISIS are inextricably connected. OK, they are mortal enemies of each other. Iran is a Shia nation. ISIS are Sunni Wahhabists. So to say that they are the cause of one another is just absolutely madness. Um, so he's kind of demonstrated that he has no idea that there are differences between Muslims. He doesn't know the difference between a Shia and a Sunni. 
And he's just, he's insane. He knows nothing. Now, he also wants to dox China and basically let the, let the Chinese people know that the Chinese government is enriching oligarchs. Um, but his party does the same exact thing. The Republicans are constantly trying to enrich oligarchs. That's the reason why they take so much campaign contributions from the likes of the Koch brothers and whatnot, because they're trying to pay it forward to them and give them something in return for their campaign contributions. So I thought this was extremely ironic that he made this statement and didn't even think about the irony that he is doing the same exact thing. He's just as corrupt, if not more corrupt, than the Chinese government when it comes to enriching oligarchs. So kudos to him. He actually gets an applause for that because that was so insanely stupid and it proved that he's just unaware of himself. Now, when it comes to John Kasich, this is someone who I thought was the moderate, but apparently I was completely wrong. Now, to me, this was Kasich's worst performance by far, and he has officially unleashed the crazy tonight. Now, he literally said that he wants to, quote, punch Russia in the nose and overthrow Assad. So again, this is another establishment candidate who is trying to uh, perpetuate the argument that we need to intervene in every country ever. Um, but the problem is that he said that he doesn't want to be the world's police, but he also said we should overthrow Assad and punch Russia in the face. Um, first and foremost, that's an immediate contradiction. And second of all, this is absolutely insane because if you quote punch Russia in the face, again, you will escalate to World War III. I don't think you want to start a war against a nuclear power as we are a nuclear power too. And it could potentially be detrimental, not just to Russia or the United States, but the world. So the fact that these people are just absolutely insane, um, suicidal to a degree for wanting to start World War III, I can't comprehend why that's the case. Now, he also said that world leaders should not have talked about climate change in Paris, but rather they should have talked about ISIS. Um, okay, here's the thing, though. ISIS threatens a select number of people. Um, their threat, it's probably contained to the Middle East or North Africa. It... It, it extends further than that to a degree, you know, in Western countries. But climate change, however, has a universal threat. It threatens humanity. So to say that something that threatens humanity is less of a problem than a group of people who are killing people in a couple of countries, you're an idiot. You're an absolute idiot for thinking this because climate change is the biggest threat that our species faces, okay? ISIS is a threat but they're not the biggest threat. Now, when it comes to Rubio, first and foremost, I thought that he came off way more smarmy and fake than Ted Cruz this time. So kudos to you, because I didn't think that could be topped, Marco Rubio. Now, he also took a beating from Cruz and Paul, and this was just overall not a good night for Rubio, in my opinion. And I don't think that he'll be hurting too bad for this, but he's got to step it up. Now, he made some idiotic statements and said, quote, people are called bigots for holding on to traditional values. He also said that Obama, quote, destroyed our military, which is insulting to our military because we have the strongest military in the world. And also, uh, he said that we have, the quote, the oldest and smallest Air Force. These are all lies. We have the biggest and best military in the world, and that's objectively speaking. We spend more money than the next 10 largest spenders combined. Okay, so we have the best military. And furthermore, someone who wants to hold on to traditional values, they are a bigot. So get over it. You always talk about how the Democrats are espousing policies that are of yesterday and old. But it's ironic that you are trying to bring back policies where almost the majority of the GOP base now is in favor of such a same-sex marriage. Again, a majority of Republican voters under 40 support same-sex marriage. 
So you're doing the bidding of the oldest in your party who will be gone soon. They're literally dying off. So I don't think that's a very smart policy decision and it makes you look like an idiot. Now, he also made the point that we shouldn't let in refugees because if you get just one wrong, well that person could commit a terrorist attack and harm numerous people. Yet, just last week, he defended allowing individuals on the terrorist watch list to be able to buy guns because the list sometimes places people on it who shouldn't be there. So the fact that people who are on the terrorist watch, watch list, it may be the case that they're on there arbitrarily and they shouldn't be on there. So we might as well let, just let all the terrorists on that list buy guns. Okay, well what happened to the just one person could cause a huge problem? Isn't that the same case if you let terrorists buy guns? This guy is absolutely ridiculous, he is inconsistent, and he's just insane. So basically, this is an argument that he tries to make, and he tries so hard to limit its applicability, but in actuality, it has much broader implications and can be extrapolated to many different scenarios, but he is not cognizant of that fact, um, and it wouldn't fit his narrative, so that's why he does it. Now, he also made the case as to why we should intervene in other countries, and I'm really glad that uh, Rand Paul and Ted Cruz knocked him down on this because his argument was weak, and he didn't exert the same amount of confidence that he typically does with these types of arguments. Now, one thing that I can say about Marco Rubio that I'm excited about is that uh, he actually knew the difference between a Shia and a Sunni Muslim. Congratulations, man. You're one of maybe two Republicans that knows that. <laughs> I mean, what? Uh, Jeb Bush, maybe Rand Paul. They know it, but nobody else knows it. Chris Christie certainly doesn't know it because he thinks that ISIS and Iran are working together. If you could distinguish that, you're already a league ahead of the rest of the party. Uh, so overall, that's my thoughts on the fifth and final GOP debate for the year. Uh, and I think that this debate is important because it really sets the stage for what's coming. So basically, uh, in uh, the next couple of months, we will see the Iowa caucus, the New Hampshire primary. And this debate is probably going to have a lasting effect on the first uh competitions that we see in this election. I think that this was a very terrible debate overall. It was a complete shit show, I said on Twitter, uh, because it was just nothing but fear-mongering and propaganda. So overall, terrible debate, terrible candidates. Uh, the winner, I think, was probably Jeb Bush, but who knows? There's multiple losers. I mean, nobody's really a winner with GOP debates. They all suck. But anyways, that's, that's my take. With the new GOP debate comes a whole new slew of assertions that are either misrepresentative of reality or just outright fabrications. So PolitiFact broke down some of the biggest claims made by the candidates last night. So I'll go over those, but also I have some more that I want to add because there were just blatant lies told that you can easily dismiss. Now, first and foremost, Ted Cruz stated that the head of the FBI told Congress they cannot vet Syrian refugees. Now, PolitiFact rates this mostly false because they can and they do vet Syrian refugees and our vetting process is very comprehensive. It takes 18 to 24 months to vet them. So uh, to state that we can't vet them, that doesn't make sense and it's not representative of reality. So Ted Cruz was lying right there. Now, Jeb Bush said two months ago, Donald Trump said that ISIS was not our fight. Now, PolitiFact actually rates this mostly true. As we all know, Donald Trump, he tends to just blow off a lot of hot air. So he's not necessarily paying attention to everything that he says. So when he makes these types of claims and then later goes and contradicts himself, well, he's not aware of it because a lot of the time he just, he moves his mouth, 
but he doesn't pay attention to what's coming out. So the fact that Jeb Bush pointed this out was not only smart on Jeb Bush's part, but it shows that Donald Trump is a blithering idiot. Now, Rand Paul made the assertion that, quote, Marco Rubio is the one for the open border. Now, PolitiFact rated this claim pants on fire false. It's completely a fabricated lie. Now, the reason why Rand Paul said this is because he's referring to a 2013 bill, uh, and that bill, which Marco Rubio supported, is the reason why Rand Paul states that Marco Rubio is for an open border, but within that specific bill, well, it has extensive border security as one of the contingents. Uh, so Rand Paul basically just said this to smear Marco Rubio, but it has no substance. It, it's not based on empirical reality. The bill that Marco Rubio supports it actually does have border security, so Marco Rubio is not for an open border, obviously. Now, when it comes to Carly Fiorina, she says, quote, One of the things I would immediately do is bring back the warrior class. Petraeus, McChrystal, Mattis, uh, Matisse, however you pronounce that name, uh, Keen, Flynn, everyone was retired... Everyone was retired early because they told President Obama things that he didn't want to hear. Now, PolitiFact rates this mostly false because it runs the gamut from right to wrong. It's true that some of those individuals retired because they didn't agree with Obama, but that's not true for all of these individuals. So basically, she just name-dropped a bunch of people, but she didn't really look into all of their positions. Now, it's the case that Obama is going to clash with military generals and other individuals in government, uh, but not all of them retired because they disagree with Obama or that uh, they told him something he didn't want to hear. So that's a lie. Now, there are three other claims that I want to fact check personally, uh, and they all are related to Chris Christie. Uh, so I'm going to be using PolitiFact's rating system to rate Chris Christie's claims because I thought that they were so ridiculous, you couldn't not fact check them, and I don't want this misinformation getting out there and spreading. So now, first and foremost, Chris Christie says Iran and ISIS are inextricably connected, and I rate this pants on fire false. So if you know anything about the Middle East and North African politics, foreign policy, if you have any knowledge whatsoever about this general political area, you'll know that ISIS is comprised of Sunni Muslims, Sunni Wahhabi Muslims in particular, a very extremist branch of Islam, whereas Iran is a Shia nation. The government is Shia. I don't know if Chris Christie knows this, but both Shia and Sunni, well, they typically don't like each other, hence the reason why there was a civil war in Iraq that was Shia versus Sunni. So to state that Iraq and ISIS are, quote, inextricably connected is just a blatant lie. And I don't necessarily think that Chris Christie actually lied on purpose. I think that he just doesn't know the difference between a Sunni and a Shia Muslim, and is just dumb. Now, another thing that Chris Christie states, he says, it's reckless to invite Russia and Iran into Syria, and I rate this claim mostly false. Now, I don't say pants on fire, because it is the case that we can't really truly know the intentions of Iran and, uh, and Russia, but we can actually look at their actions, and when you look at their actions, you'll see that what they are doing is beneficial, not just for us, but to the entire region because they are currently fighting ISIS. Now, Chris Christie has stated that he wants to diminish and ultimately defeat ISIS. The way you do this is not by bearing that responsibility by yourself and making the U.S. do all of it, but you have to have other people do it as well. You need allies. You need a coalition. Now, again, I want to stress the fact that both Russia and Iran's intentions are probably to protect Assad, which we also don't like. 
but they're destroying what many GOP candidates say is the biggest ex existential threat to the nation, which is ISIS. So to state that is incorrect by his own standards. Now, the final claim, Chris Christie says, he states that the Chinese government is enriching oligarchs. Now, I rate this true, but I also rate this, but so are you, you hypocrite, <laughs> because what is it that the GOP party aims to do most? Um, they are enriching our American oligarchs, the Koch brothers, uh, Paul Singer, uh, Sheldon Adelson. Everything that they do is tailored to the interests of the elite billionaire donor class. So it's probably the case that American uh, politicians are enriching our oligarchy more so than Chinese officials. It's hypocritical, and he really doesn't think that people perceive him as a corrupt politician, but... We know we're paying attention and we know you're corrupt. So those were the biggest lies. Comment down below if I missed anything and fact check them in the comment section because we want to be sure to break down as much information or as much misinformation as possible. Well, that's the entire episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the topics I discussed. I want to thank all of my subscribers as well as my donors on both Patreon and HumanistReport.com. And I also want to welcome all of my newest subscribers to the channel. Uh, if you guys have any uh, topics that you want to hear on the show, Feel free to comment down below. I'll see you guys next week. Pop quiz. What do you do if you're trying to win an election, but voters just don't like you? You steal it. That's effectively what the DNC is now doing for Hillary Clinton's campaign. So the DNC has cut off Bernie Sanders' access to VAN, a comprehensive 50-state vote file that lists voter patterns and preferences, effectively shutting down the campaign's voter outreach operations just over a month before the critical Iowa caucus and a little over 50 days before the New Hampshire primary. Why would they do this, you ask? Why would they effectively kill his campaign? Well... The punishment came about as the result of a 30-minute glitch in the NGP van, the vendor that handles the DNC's voter data in which internal models for each Democratic presidential campaign were briefly available to other competing campaigns while NGP van was applying a patch to the software. Now, Michael Briggs, the campaign spokesman for Bernie Sanders' campaign, states, on more than one occasion, the vendor has dropped the firewall between the data of different Democratic campaigns. Our campaign months ago alerted the DNC to the fact that our campaign data was being made available to other campaigns. At that time, our campaign did not run to the media, relying instead on assurances from the vendor. Now, at the time that this firewall went down, a low-level staffer on Bernie Sanders' campaign, Josh Uretsky, he saw that this happened, uh, and then he proceeded to report it within 30 minutes. But if you are reading anything in the media from the Washington Post, BuzzFeed, they are trying to frame it as though he was snooping around, but it was a 30-minute breach. He found it, reported it 30 minutes later. That's the right thing to do. But nonetheless, Bernie Sanders' campaign has fired him immediately, just because even if this guy didn't do anything wrong, they don't even want to give the appearance that they are potentially uh, resorting to unethical tactics because they don't have to do that. Uh, they can win on the merit alone, hence the reason why Bernie Sanders is doing so well in spite of the media blackout. Now, um, here's what Uretsky had to say for himself. CNN explains, He wanted people with knowledge of the voter files to be able to clearly see that he was testing the depth of the breach. This wasn't the first time we identified a bad breach, he said, confirming to CNN that Sanders' campaign reported another breach to the DNC in October. We reported it to them, they thanked us for reporting it, and they told us the breach had been closed. In retrospect, 
except I got a little panicky because our data was totally exposed too, Uresky said, of how he handled the latest breach. We had to have an assessment and understanding of how broad the exposure was, and I had to document it so that I could try to calm down and think about what actually happened so that way I could figure out how to protect our stuff. Now he adds, it was 100% my responsibility, and I take full responsibility for whatever happened. So basically, let me break down what he's trying to do. So if you see a breach, well, it's basically, it makes sense to test the extent of that breach. So he wasn't intentionally snooping or trying to take files from Clinton's campaign, because if you're going to do that, you're going to need a lot longer than 30 minutes to do that. But he was basically testing out the parameters of the breach. Now, regardless if you agree or disagree with that, that's one individual. That's a low-level staffer on Bernie Sanders' campaign. So to cut off access to the information that Bernie Sanders gathered that belongs to him because of a low-level staffer's actions... It's absolutely absurd. Now, the DNC has vowed to not grant the Sanders campaign access to the voter file until it has proved that it destroyed all of the Clinton campaign data it inadvertently accessed as a result of the glitch. However, as Reddit user Bastion of Press pointed out, the Sanders campaign cannot prove it destroyed something it doesn't have, meaning the ban on accessing critical voter information could be indefinite. So now let me rephrase that for you guys. They are asking Bernie Sanders to prove a negative. You can't prove a negative. You can only prove a positive. So you can't prove that you don't have information. That's not the way this works. So you see how this seems incredibly fishy. Now, the DNC is planning to audit Sanders' campaign now as a result of this. But Bernie Sanders' campaign has threatened to take legal action uh, if his access to the information he owns... And he gathered, let me remind you, he owns it, he gathered it. Thousands of volunteers put in time and effort to this work. Well, if he doesn't get that back, this means he'll be in a federal court seeking immediate relief. Now, to those of you saying that this information is, it's not that vital, it's very vital. Political science studies have confirmed that this information that candidates have is absolutely crucial. It can make or break a candidate. Can Bernie Sanders still technically win without this information? Well, yeah, but it is highly improbable. It's as if you're trying to win a game of basketball while playing with a blindfold. You just can't win without the information. Effectively, it kills off his campaign. And the problem is that even if they suspend his access to this information for just one week, that's devastating because let me tell you how much campaigns use this information. You can talk to anyone who's volunteered or worked for a campaign. The outreach that campaigns do it's nonstop, over and over and over and over and over. Without this information, they cannot really do outreach effectively. So now another interesting aspect about this is that even though the media never covers Bernie Sanders and there's basically a blackout of Bernie Sanders coverage, well, of course, when something negative happens, now they're all over it. So let me read you some of these biased headlines. BBC News' headline reads, Bernie Sanders campaign punished over Clinton snooping. BuzzFeed News reads, Bernie Sanders' campaign accessed confidential Clinton data. The Washington Post, who broke the story, reads, DNC penalizes Sanders' campaign for improper access of Clinton voter data. Now, of course, this is a heavily biased set of headlines, but you're going to see that everywhere. The one source thus far that I found is U.S. Uncut, who has been doing a phenomenal job at reporting this and updating us on the situation. So now, Bernie Sanders is doing the correct thing uh, by taking a strong stance against this, but it's time for him to actually take an even more stronger stance. He needs to threaten now to run for third party if they do not stop this immediately. Now, there's a reason why the Republican Party is allowing a buffoon like Donald Trump to go crazy and run amok. They're not 
doing this because he has leverage. He's afraid that uh, they're afraid that he's going to run as a third party candidate. And this is what keeps the Republican establishment in check and keeps them from trying to implement these disgusting tactics that the DNC has been using. But Bernie Sanders needs that leverage and you need to threaten to run as a third party. Even if you're not going to follow through on that threat, I think it's essential that you have some form of leverage. To me, this is extremely disheartening. It's extremely frustrating because when you restrict voter choice, when you give individuals the illusion of choice, that's not democratic. That's authoritarian. And ironically, democracy is in the name of the Democratic Party. You are Democrats. That means you are an advocate of democracy, but yet you are blatantly contradicting everything that the party is supposed to stand for. And this is what dictators do. When dictators don't win, they try to steal elections or they restrict choices so that way voters have the illusion of choice. But in actuality, the other candidate can't actually win. We saw this in Iran, how Ahmadinejad stole the election away. Voters had the illusion of choice, but in actuality, the other candidate, Musavi, I believe, he had no chance of winning. And this is what we're seeing now in America. A democratic republic. An actual democracy. It's insane. So now here's what we can do. First and foremost, sign the petition. I'm going to put a link in the description box. It already has 150,000 signatures. Now, sign this one. There's going to be multiple petitions floating around on the internet, but this is the one that US Uncut has posted. So it has the most thus far, and we need to jump on the bandwagon that is already happening. We can't come up with a bunch of petitions. We need to jump on this one right now. Now, furthermore, we need to send a clear message to the DNC that we are not going to take this. So first and foremost, we donate to Bernie Sanders' campaign. I've donated $10 to his campaign. And if we all donate $10 to his campaign and he gets a surge because of this, we can really send a clear message that we are not backing down. Now, furthermore, there are two hashtags we have to use. Now, I want you guys to tweet all day to the DNC. We're all going to lose some Twitter followers because we're going to be blowing up Twitter. So we're for one, we're going to use the hashtag storm the DNC because there are a lot of protests right now of unions in front of the DNC. And furthermore, here's a hashtag that I'm creating that I'm going to use and I'm going to be tweeting almost every hour today. Hashtag reinstate or boycott. This means that if they do not reinstate Bernie Sanders' access to his own data, that you will be boycotting this election. That means that you're writing in a third party candidate in protest. Now, you don't have to follow through with that threat. You don't even have to agree with it. But we need some type of leverage, guys. We can't just allow them to run away with this because they see this crazy crowd of Republicans. They think, you know, there's no way that these progressive voters are going to vote against uh, Hillary Clinton because that increases the chance that a Republican could win. Well, guess what? Now, I'm ready to do that. I'm not going to vote for a party who's authoritarian. The point of voting is to exercise democracy. But if you can't do that, if you restrict the right of me to express my choice, I'm not voting for you. I'm voting third party out of protest. Now, this is frustrating because, look, here's the deal. If we don't win this primary, if we lose, I at least want to feel confident stating that I had the choice, the equal opportunity to voice my concern. If we don't have enough support with uh, the Democratic electorate, that's fine. I accept that. But if you try to use these strong arm tactics and stifle the campaign of Bernie Sanders in a way that's arbitrary and authoritarian, 
I'm not supporting your party. So another thing we need to do is to call the DNC at 202-863-8000. That's 202-863-8000. You're not going to get through to them, but you will get to their uh, voicemail system and you can leave them a message. I'm going to do that right now because I don't want you guys to think that I'm just telling you to do this, but I'm not going to follow through myself. I'm calling them right now uh, and you guys can hear that conversation because I'm really amped up. Maybe you can say the same thing I did. Maybe you can say your own message, but I'm definitely calling them. And I'm going to put it on speaker so you guys can hear. Thank you for contacting the Democratic National Committee. Our telephone reception hours on Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Send us an email at info. Ah, at I will send them an email, so I'll put the email on the screen. Good idea. Our website at democrats.org. More options. Hello, my name is Michael Figueredo. I am 28 years old. I've been a Democratic voter since 2008. I voted for Barack Obama twice. I vote Democrat across the board uh, in House races, in Senate races, in gubernatorial races. And after the DNC's actions against Bernie Sanders, if they do not reinstate his access to VAN, his, uh, the system in which he has gathered information, uh, and it's his own information. Well, if you don't reinstate access to that, I can promise you I will never vote Democrat ever again, and I will vote third party every single time. And also, I will actively uh, campaign against Hillary Clinton because I'm not going to vote for a party who, who uses these authoritarian, non-democratic tactics. So I can promise you, I will tell everyone I know, I will never vote Democrat again. It's going to be third party from here on out. I'm voting for the Greens. I know that won't win, but it's one less vote for you guys. And Hillary Clinton will not win. I will actively campaign against her in the general election. So reinstate Bernie Sanders' access to this. It needs to be a fair election. You guys are already limited debates. So that way, Bernie Sanders is hidden away on a Saturday before Christmas. So this is completely unacceptable. And as a Democratic voter, I'm really ashamed of myself for voting for this party because I supported you guys in spite of the fact that you always sell out to corporate interests. And I'm not going to do that again. I am not voting for this party again. So give Bernie Sanders an equal chance or I boycott this election. Thank you. Sorry, guys, I'm really flustered right now. I don't even know what to say anymore. This is really frustrating. It's disheartening. It's outrageous. So please join with me. Uh, take action. Donate. Call. Um, use the Twitter hashtags that I said. Storm the DNC and reinstate or boycott. So that way we can really get a clear message because we've got to put pressure on them because every single day that Bernie Sanders does not have access to this information, it's detrimental. And if he has a week of no access to this information... That is going to significantly harm his campaign, and this could potentially cost him the election. We can't let this happen. This is a grassroots effort. This is a grassroots campaign. We've got to put pressure on the DNC. We've got to get this reversed. Okay, so I just finished up watching the third Democratic debate. And before I even get into my analysis, let me just say that putting the debate on a Saturday before a major holiday is egregious. Like, I was actually planning to film 
a video uh, reaction to the debate, but I couldn't do that because I had uh, obligations to my family like most people do. So let me just say how stupid this was, and we know why the DNC is doing this. They're doing this to hide Bernie Sanders away from the public. So let's just get that out of the way. Now, uh, second of all, before I tell you guys who I think won, who lost, I'm going to go ahead and recap what I thought happened last time. So uh, in the second debate, that was very exciting to watch. So I thought that Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley were basically tied in terms of who won, but I thought that Bernie Sanders had the edge slightly because he had more bigger moments. And I thought that Hillary Clinton lost by a mile. Like, I thought it was very clear that she lost. Now, for this debate, uh, the results have switched. So now Martin O'Malley, he's the biggest loser for me. He lost by a mile. He did absolutely terrible. I was shocked. I mean, where was the Martin O'Malley from the second debate? Because this was absolutely just atrocious, and he looked and sounded like a Republican on many occasions. Now, in terms of who won, I think that Bernie Sanders won again. Now, I think that Bernie Sanders won by a mile this time. I mean, there's no dispute. Hillary Clinton... She did not do as bad as she did last time, but she's nowhere near Bernie Sanders in terms of winning. So it's Bernie Sanders. He definitely performed the best. That's very clear. And then Hillary Clinton is a distant second. And then Martin O'Malley is a just far third. I mean, he's off the spectrum. He did so terrible. I mean, I, I'm shocked at how bad he performed. So now let me just give you my overall thoughts before I get into my more in-depth analysis. So first and foremost, I felt like some of the candidates just weren't energetic. Uh, especially for the first half, and this includes Bernie Sanders as well, and it's because the moderators were not very good at controlling the debate. They didn't ask good questions. Why is it that at a democratic debate, there's not a single question being asked about climate change, yet they focused on terrorism for a substantial portion? I mean, what am I watching? Am I watching the Republicans or am I watching a Democratic debate? Climate change is the biggest threat to humanity. So why are not why aren't we talking about this? Now, um, I got really tired of hearing about ISIS. That was just that was too long. I mean, there's so many issues. You cannot just focus on ISIS. Also, let me comment on the question that they asked. They literally asked the question, it is, is it time to change the role of a president's spouse? What? was going on what kind of a question was that i mean are we are we five-year-olds like what type of question was that i am not voting for a president's spouse i'm voting for a president so i think that that's completely irrelevant but thank god i know that hillary clinton is going to be the one that's going to be picking out flowers i mean thank god because i mean if Cl if bill was going to do it I just can't deal with that. I can't even face the thought of something like that. So thank God she's picking out the flowers. So I'm really glad I have this bit of information because I really needed it. I thought that it was really vital to the campaign. I'm being facetious, obviously. <laughs> um, now, let me talk about who um, the mainstream media has picked. So mainstream media, obviously, they picked Hillary Clinton as the winner. No surprise here. All the push polls show that Bernie Sanders is leagues ahead of Hillary Clinton. And I think that my opinion is identical to that of the push, push polls, where Bernie Sanders is winning at like 80, 90 percent. And Hillary Clinton has like 15 percent. Martin O'Malley has like 1 percent. I think that's very fair. I think that it's accurate. So again, I predicted this yesterday that Bernie Sanders would win and perform the best. But mainstream media would say that Hillary Clinton won. So you can go to Slate and see that um, they have Hillary Clinton as the winner. 
I can't see how you can potentially perform all these mental gymnastics to state that Hillary Clinton is the winner. She did a terrible job. Uh, so let me get into the actual details here. I'm going to start out with Martin O'Malley because um, I have the least to say about him. So we'll just kind of get him out of the way. Uh, one, I thought that he sounded incredibly fake. He basically is a combination of Marco Rubio, John Kasich, and Ted Cruz. If you combine them all together with the bragging about being governor and the smarminess like Ted Cruz and kind of the just empty statements that Marco Rubio makes, you've got Martin O'Malley in, in democratic form. Now, I thought that he did good to state that we shouldn't declare when Assad must go, because this is a correct point, so I'm glad that he brought that up. Now, he also made a comment that actually was just idiotic. He said that he wanted to bring in a different generation's perspective, obviously poking fun at the fact that Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are much older than him. Well, that's... That's stupid. I mean, sure, it's great to have a younger voice in, but if you're going to purport that, you know, that gives you an advantage, then actually prove it. But you didn't prove that. Perhaps last time you could have made that argument, but you looked like you were going to fall asleep up there and you were being so incredibly fake. So that made you look really dumb. Now, furthermore, the most, I think the dumbest moment of the night goes to Martin O'Malley because he states that we should not replace capitalism with socialism. Now, I agree with that, but so does Bernie Sanders. He's not asking for an overthrow of democracy. He's a social democrat, but that's what Martin O'Malley was implying. So what he did was use a Republican talking point against Bernie Sanders. Now, Martin O'Malley, I've got bad news for you, buddy, but if you're elected, guess what you're going to be called as president? You're going to be called a socialist. They call Barack Obama a socialist when he's clearly not a socialist. He's a corporatist, which I'm assuming you will be as well. So to use that Republican talking point against Bernie Sanders is shameful. Uh, now, I thought that it was good, however, when he um, told Clinton that uh, she told banks that they weren't responsible for the financial collapse. I thought that was good because you're using facts to uh, point out the flaws in the other candidates. You're not just resorting to platitudes that are empty and actually don't mean anything. He also proved how fake he was when he made the comment that his family had to borrow so much money to send their daughters to college. Really? <laughs> I call bullshit on that. You were the governor of Maryland. I don't think you had a problem sending your daughters to college. I just don't. Okay, so when it comes to Bernie Sanders, I thought that it was excellent when he called out the DNC. Um, I liked it when he said that uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar need to step up. I thought that was a good idea. But when asked how he would make that happen, I don't think that Bernie Sanders went into detail far enough. He said that he would basically just make them get on board by stating that ISIS is right on your doorstep and you need to spend money on this as opposed to that. That's not a real solution, and I don't think that's going to change their mind. So I think he needs to come up with something stronger because, I mean, he's making a very strong argument, but I think he just needs to persuade people more by proving to them that he really will be able to actually form a coalition because this will be difficult. Now, I like when he said that Hillary Clinton and basically the U.S. is too aggressive and we often overthrow these these dictators when we don't even know the consequences. And I thought that he looked great right there. Now, tonight, he did really well on foreign policy. I mean, there's an article in the Washington Post that critiqued Bernie Sanders and basically called him a one-trick pony because they state that he was too one-dimensional and uh, he just wasn't good when it comes to foreign policy. I think Bernie Sanders tonight flipped that argument on its head. He did really well. He was... Just, I mean, just an exceptional performance when it comes to foreign policy. Um, I like how he stated that corporate America will like Hillary Clinton, but not him. 
damn, that was a very strong and truthful attack. And he pointed out the fact, correctly so, that she is taking millions of dollars from Wall Street. I mean, that is, that's strong. That says everything you need to. Hillary Clinton couldn't rebut it, because how are you going to respond to that? Now, also, he stated that he kind of led a fight against Bill Clinton. And when he looked at Hillary Clinton and stated, maybe you know him, Oh my god, <laughs> that was so good. Now, also, I liked how he linked healthcare to campaign finance reform because he pointed out how indirectly so that Hillary Clinton is guilty of not wanting universal healthcare because she was bought off by the medical insurance industry. If you watch the movie Sicko with Michael Moore, he actually shows how Hillary Clinton evolved on the stance, uh, how she used to be in favor of universal healthcare, but then she was bought out and given so much money from the health insurance industry. Well, now she's in their pockets and uh she's not in favor of it so i think it was right for him to make that point now i do have one area of criticism on bernie sanders when it comes to um his college tuition plan so i agree with the tuition for all being free i think that that's fantastic i think he has by far the strongest plan but he needs to actually do more for people with student loan debt than lower the interest rates uh, it's just not enough. I mean, you have to come up with a better plan. I mean, even if you lower interest rates and you cap it at, let's say, just 5 or 10% of someone's income, that doesn't change the fact that you are burdened with upwards of forty, fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 worth of debt. So it's not going to erase that debt. So you have to do something more. You have to go another step forward. And I think that Bernie Sanders needs to be a little bit stronger on this. So this is one area of um, opportunity where he needs to improve because that's not enough. Now, I'm not just being overly uh, harsh to Bernie Sanders because I think that this is the case for both Martin O'Malley and Hillary Clinton as well. But Bernie Sanders is someone who I would just naturally expect would want to do more. So he needs to improve uh, in this regard, in my opinion. Now, I also thought that Bernie Sanders thwarted uh, Hillary Clinton's attack against universal health care really well. She's done this before. She did it just a couple weeks ago. I covered it where she stated that, um, you know, it's going to raise Americans' taxes and, you know, it's going to cost 18 to 20 trillion dollars. But it's so disingenuous because she's not telling you that our current system costs upwards of $30 trillion already. So if you end that system, then you're going to be saving money with a single-payer healthcare system. You don't need to pay for a single-payer and a private system as well. So you're not going to be paying $33 trillion plus $20 trillion. That's not the way that it works. You'll be saving money in the long run. So that's so just misleading for her to bring that up and i'm glad that he mentioned that now i thought that his performance this time was the best now what i've noticed about bernie sanders is that as he's learning the debate styles of both martin o'malley and hillary clinton he's in, he's really improving over time and i really like that now furthermore he was really really strong on institutional racism i mean that was fantastic he did more than any of the other candidates when addressing the issues specifically tailored to the African-American community and the Black Lives Matter movement. I thought that he addressed their concerns really well, and I thought that he came out looking really great. Now, also, I like that he linked universal healthcare also to drug problems because all of these problems are interconnected. So I like that he's drawing these parallels here. Now, when it comes to Hillary Clinton, um, I thought that it was really funny I guess you can say how she stated that America isn't interested in the, quote, Bernie Sanders scandal. Um, and she was basically trying to emulate the momentum that Bernie Sanders had built up after he defended her against her email scandal. Sorry, Hillary, but you're not going to get credit for that because you didn't come out and defend him when he needed it, which was yesterday. What you did was you actually condemned Bernie Sanders 
But the next day, one day later, you stated that, well, America doesn't care about these issues. Well, you cared about it yesterday. So why all of a sudden you're just trying to capitalize on the success of Bernie Sanders? But that didn't work out for you too well. So mm, sorry. Try again. Now, I like how she brought up a three point plan. Uh, when it comes to foreign policy, uh, her third point was, quote, do more to keep us safe. That sounds very Trumpian. What does that mean? Do more to keep us safe. I don't know what that means. What does that entail? <laughs> I mean, if I say something like I'm going to save the world from climate change, there's more to it than that. OK, that's that's great. But it's an empty statement if you don't give us the details and the nuances of it. So, yeah, that I just wanted to point that out. Now, there were some areas where I um, agreed with Hillary Clinton. Now, she made a great point about why we don't need a ground war in Syria. But the problem is that even though she made a great point there, I don't believe her. I think that this will escalate as the moderator had insinuated that it's going to escalate to a ground war. And I think that Hillary Clinton will probably end up getting us into a ground war. So I don't believe her there. Although I thought that she looked strong when she made that point. However, she made a really terrible argument for a Syrian no-fly zone. When asked if she would shoot down a Russian plane, she states, I don't think it would come to that. Really? You don't think it would come to that? Hillary Clinton, do you not see what Vladimir Putin has been doing? I mean, he annexed Crimea. I mean, that was huge. I mean, that was absolutely huge. The reverberations of that were felt around the world. So you don't think that he would push the envelope a little bit further? And furthermore, she didn't make a good case for it. What you really want to do is you want to flex your muscles so that way you can basically show Vladimir Putin, who's boss, that's what the Syrian no-fly zone is about. And she looked terrible. Now, also, she wants to fight ISIS and Assad at the same time. This is so dumb. I mean, she just came out looking really bad here. You're literally fighting on both sides of the war, okay? Because you have ISIS fighting against Assad and you have Assad fighting against ISIS. So she doesn't understand how dumb she looks when she says something like this. This is just nonsensical. It blows my mind that someone who has a great chance at becoming the next president is literally advocating to fight on both sides of the war. Now, furthermore, uh, she stated that it was a grave mistake for the Iranians to be in Israel. Or excuse me, she said it was a grave mistake for the Iranians to be in Syria because they threatened Israel. She looked like a Republican when she said that. Because, for one, Iran being in Syria fighting ISIS has nothing to do with Israel. But I know why she said that. It's because she wants money from the pro-Israel uh, interest groups. So we know your intentions there. I mean, you can see everything. It's just so clear what she does. Now, lastly, she didn't learn from her previous foreign policy blunders because when you arm rebels, that can sometimes go to ISIS. So we need to just mind our own business and stay out of this war. Now, when it comes to economic issues, she is not strong here. Bernie Sanders is leagues ahead of her. So notice what she does now every single time. She did it last time, too. Anytime when asked about economic issues, she'll pivot to the Republicans because she's weak. So she'll state, well, look at the Republicans. All of us Democrats, we're leagues ahead of the Republicans because she's deflecting. She doesn't want to state that, you know, she's only proposing a $12 minimum wage instead of a $15 minimum wage and that she's in the pockets of Wall Street. She doesn't want you to think about that. So by basically deflecting and pivoting to the Republicans and stating how bad they are, she's drawing attention away from her. And that's, I don't, I don't know if many people are going to be keen to this fact, but I certainly notice it and I want you guys to notice it too. Now, when she stated that she has more donations from students and teachers, that doesn't mean anything because she's taken more money 
from Wall Street. So that was a disingenuous thing to say. Oh, now one good area is that I thought that when she attacked Martin O'Malley for going to Wall Street for help, I thought that actually made her look strong. And I thought that was smart because it showed that Martin O'Malley is just a fake politician. So good on Hillary Clinton for actually exposing him there. Now, the $5,000 tax credit that she proposed when it comes to universal, or excuse me, when it comes to just healthcare in general, uh, that's not going to do very much. I mean, it shows that you don't really know the extent of the healthcare problem or you don't care because most people who are in debt because of medical bills, well, they're in debt substantially. I mean, they have medical bills of $50,000, $100,000. I have people who I've talked to who watch The Humanist Report who stated that they have upwards of $100,000 of medical debt. And this is something that you can't control. So I don't think that a $5,000 tax credit is going to do much for a lot of people. Now, she critiqued Bernie Sanders and stated that he'll how um, he's going to pay for tuition is going to be something that will require a tax increase. But she said that literally minutes after Bernie Sanders explained how he's going to pay for college tuition from a Wall Street speculation tax. I don't think you know how far that can go. I mean, a Wall Street speculation tax will raise a tremendous amount of revenue. So I don't think she was paying attention or she just didn't care or was hoping that voters weren't paying attention. But I thought that that was a Republican attack. And um, when she stated, we need to uh, talk about how we can afford what we propose, that was very Republican-esque. And it proves that Hillary Clinton is a moderate Republican. She is not a Democrat. I mean, she you can state that there are conservative Democrats, but she's past that. She is a Republican light. I mean, I can't see how liberal voters, so-called liberal voters, like her. Now, uh, the last thing that I'll say about Hillary Clinton is that when she said, may the force be with you, I thought that was great. <laughs> I actually really liked that a lot. That was good on her. I wish Bernie Sanders would have thought of that. Because um, <laughs> that, yeah, that was great. It made her look more human. Um, and yeah, I liked when she said that. Go Star Wars. But anyways, that's my thoughts on the debate. Comment down below and tell me what you think. If you agree, if you disagree, um, I will see you guys next time.